are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Iona coming to you from Buenos Aires, as usual. And my guest this week is Bridget Fettesey. Bridget is a writer and comedian, and she also has her own podcast called Walk-Ins Welcome. I'm going to put some links to her writing work and her podcast in the show notes later. And her podcast is an immensely professional affair. I actually consider Bridget a bit of a podcasting role model. (laughs) Um, So welcome. Uh, Welcome, Bridget. And um, you are a role model in more ways than one. And I don't know if this is a good place to start, but I'm just going to start here and see how we go, because I know that you are uh, a former addict. Yes. That uh, you used to take a lot of drugs and you were also an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And you dedicate a lot of your time now to helping other people get sober and stay sober. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you like to talk to us about that, how that, how you kind of fell into that, whether you feel there's a kind of addictive personality, mm-hmm. which interests me because I think that I have an addictive personality, <laughs> unfortunately. I'm pretty sure, you know, on my family, on my mother's side is about half of them are heavy drinkers and the other half are teetotalers because they've been through Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And my father's side of the family, I don't know much about, but Indian Parsis are reputed for being fond of their whiskey. And my father was a drinker, heavy drinker. Uh. So unfortunately, I think that I have adopted that tendency on both sides. um, And I do suffer from uh, depression. So sorry, I hate to begin the podcast on such a gloomy, (laughs) on such a gloomy note. It's it's perfect. Um, But I would... Um, I know this work is important to you, so I wanted to make sure we got it in. So I thought, why not start with it? Oh, yeah. There's no, it's not gloomy per se. And, or I, it's funny because I'm on a Twitter break. Um, and, you know, we, that's where we kind of know each other. And I'm definitely a Twitter addict. And I think that the addictive personality, and I was writing about this today it just crosses into everything for me. I can turn anything into an addiction. So you said I was kind of a former addict or former alcoholic, and I do feel like I've removed those substances for today in my life, but I feel like that part of me is always something that I have to kind of manage the addictive tendencies. It sneaks into every area of my life, even... Even being off Twitter, it's now day five. I gave it up for Lent. 
I'm shocked at how much Twitter took the edge off some of my other addictions and addictive tendencies like to, um, I feel like, a, as we call it an AA, like a newcomer. I feel like it's, it's funny. I've been doing also writing prompts on my Patreon every single day. There's like a group of us. And today's prompt was something that never changes. And from my perspective, I'm always an addict. <laughs> that never changes. And it just takes different, it shape shifts. It's like whack-a-mole. I have to constantly try and I feel like, oh, I, I got the alcohol under control and now here's Twitter and it's it's really bad. <laughs> it's like a bad addiction. <laughs> I, I have this problem as I have this problem as well, actually. And I think that I often use one addiction to distract me from another. So I'm trying to lose weight and do intermittent fasting. Oh, okay. But I really have to I've had to install an app which usually blocks my Twitter during the mornings because in the morning I'm hungry mm. because I'm doing IF and I'm doing intermittent fasting and keto, which I think we don't need to talk about. I think that will bore my listeners senseless. But <laughs> because I can't uh, eat in the mornings, instead I'm kind of like, well, if I, I, I get onto Twitter and that's distracting me from my hunger. Ah, uh, interesting. But it's really, it's, it's, uh, I mean, there are, I think, productive ways of using Twitter, just like there are productive ways of eating or drinking moderately or, you know, enjoying being a connoisseur of wines or or whatever. And then there are these kind of destructive, all-consuming ways. And it's very hard to find that dividing line. I feel like for me, and I can only speak for myself, and again, this was exactly weirdly the topic that, that I wrote about this morning was I don't moderation is something that is it probably will be my challenge forever and in terms of things like alcohol it is I I quit drinking at 35 I'm 40 and I tried everything in between the age of 19 and 35 to moderate my drinking so in and in in some of the literature, they say the delusion of every alcoholic is that they can drink like a normal person uh, or a gentleman or a lady. And I can't, I can't. I went, Once I start drinking and break that seal, I cannot, I'm the same way with sugar, honestly. I, and I think sugar was my first glimpse into that personality type. And I too come from a long line of alcoholism on both sides of my, my maternal and paternal grandparents were both alcoholics. My maternal grandfather gave it up. My paternal grandfather died um, drinking. It wasn't what caused him to die, but he he was one of those you know hope to die alcoholics. He would he would just never wanted to give it up. And they're Irish Catholic. It's kind of just part of our culture on on that side of the family. It, alcoholism wasn't even really something that was real. I see it in a lot of my aunts and uncles. Just the Perhaps not that they I could label them that, but perhaps some of the behavior and I don't know, you know, with Twitter, it's interesting because I wonder, I'm interested to see if I'll be able to moderate it or if it's like anything that I do, even smoking weed, for example, I could probably moderate smoking weed for a little while, but then eventually I would be smoking every single day from the minute that I woke up. Eventually, it would slip into that. Same with drinking. I, I'm one of those people that if I eat something sweet, it will. I'll, I can't just have like one cookie. I'll eat the whole box of 
Girl Scout cookies. It's just something, and I know people who are moderate and they don't struggle to moderate. It's not something that's like even hard for them. Mm, mm. It's like yes. their personality. Uh, what is it that you think, you know, is, is motivating that? What do you uh, think is behind that, that kind of search for excess? I don't know. You know, it's interesting because I don't, I wonder if it is a gene and I wonder they've done so many studies on it and they had that infamous rat study that they did where, where it was like, if you give the rats love, then the rats, uh, they, they kind of deprive the rats and the rats got addicted to morphine. But then there was another study that said, if you give the rats love and connection, then, then the rats will not choose the morphine laced water. They'll choose the normal water. I, I have had so much personal experience trying to moderate and and I have a a lot of connections in my life and I've you know there was trauma in my life and I think certain things trigger they say that um there have been studies that have been done that say if you can kind of go until you're 21 to before you start drinking that you can um you have a less chance of getting addicted to substances. I, I started drinking very young. I started drinking at 12 and 13 and mm. I don't, I was just trying to, but escapism has always been something escapism and adrenaline rushes or sugar rushes. I, those, I again can point back to my childhood. I could say, Oh, it was trauma. It was this, it was that it was my upbringing. I was escaping my insane household, whatever. And I really look at my behavior as a child, taking, you know, dozens of books and going upstairs and escaping into books. I think books were actually my first um, real attempt at escaping my brain and my reality. And I would binge read books and as a child. And then sugar too. I, I always tell the story about how my 10th birthday, my godfather gave me two pounds of gummy bears and I locked myself in my dad's office because I'm the oldest of five and didn't want to share them with my siblings, ate the entire two pounds of gummy bears and spent my birthday throwing up. That's like, that's junky behavior at 10 years old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's really familiar to me too. I, I was at boarding school. And so we didn't have any way of buying sweets at the school. We had no sweet shop or anything within the school premises. And uh, we were allowed out to buy sweets once a week. Mm. And um, so I had my pocket money saved up, ready. And then we would go to town to a little shop and I would spend all my pocket money on sweets. <laughs> and then I was kind of a hoarder of the sweets. I would <laughs> eat them as slowly as possible. And I'd actually do things like lick them and then put them back. Oh, um, wow. And, uh, but I remember that one week. I can't even remember why it was that we couldn't go to the shop that week, whether it was the weather or it was some punishment, because we we're always having these group punishments. If one girl did something wrong, the whole class was punished. Mm, so that was like my rehab. Deterrent. Yeah. Peer pressure mm -hmm. deterrent. It's the mm -hmm. worst. It is. It's effective. And so I think it was one of those group punishments. And I remember just this feeling of utter desperation 
because I would have to go one week without eating sweets, which is insane, you know? Yeah. It's it's interesting. You just reminded me of a the hoarder comment, reminded me of I was saving up all these little gummy bear kind of they weren't gummy bears, they were like the little fruit snacks that you can that you get as a kid, mm-hmm. the little like gummy fruit snacks. And I saved them all in a bag. We used to get them when we would go visit this cabin up in Minnesota. I was really young. This was probably even before I was, I must have been seven, seven or eight. And I had this massive bag that I had hoarded. And we went and stopped at a gas station. And one of my siblings or all of my siblings, that it disappeared. And I flipped out. And I still remember it. I still, I wouldn't let it go for the entire time that we were at the cabin, I was furious. I went into like a rage. I mean, that all of that kind of behavior, that's what makes me think that it really just might be a personality type. Even even the way that I procrastinate in and I look at even sports for instance. I was a sprinter, so I was really good in short distances and I hated long distance running. I loved playing. Um, I was a clutch hitter in softball and I played baseball before softball and I was great under pressure, but put me up at any other time. And I wasn't that great. I wrote every paper the night before it was due. It was like, I needed that adrenaline rush to even perform. And again, this is all before I, you know, before my parents got divorced, before my life got really insane. We moved a lot growing up, but other than that, it wasn't like there was any real like reason for me to be. It's I just feel like it's just kind of who I am. Part of and part of it, it's not all bad. You know, some of that is. I think it's like there's there's the dark side of that personality, but then there is the side of that personality that allows you to perform under pressure, which a lot of people don't have. That they they crumble under pressure. Whereas I. I actually cannot function under pressure at all. Mm, I go completely to pieces. I really, I really, really dislike pressure. I panic. Um, <laughs> and I think that I, I don't want to make this podcast all about me. Sorry. I make it a little more in, of a conversation than an interview, but um, because this topic is quite personal to me. So I'm really kind of want your feedback as well. Oh yeah, it can totally be about you. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know you too. <laughs> You're too good a listener. <laughs> uh, but I think that, you know, rather than an escaping, I think on one of your podcasts you said that what you were looking for was oblivion, mm. and you talked about. I think you coined this term that was sort of parallel to the to a term like opiates. You talked about oblivionates. I think that was either you or one of your guests talked about oblivionates. And mm-hmm. I feel that when I um, when I want to drink, it's usually for the opposite reason. Um, it's because I'm already feeling something quite strongly, usually a sort of sadness, upset, um, but it can also be a happiness. I want to kind of get drunk in order to feel that thing to its fullest extent. And I was, I gave up alcohol completely for a year in 2016. 
Mm-hmm. For a while, for about a decade, I did these crazy uh, New Year's resolutions every year. So I spent a year as a vegan. And I also immediately after that, I did a year without alcohol. I went back off the vegan diet, but I did no alcohol for a year. And I was very worried at the beginning of that year that I wouldn't be able to write without alcohol, that mm. without it, I wouldn't be able to get fully in touch with my feelings. I wouldn't feel things as intensely. I would be numb and therefore I would be unable to express things. Um, and actually that's not, that didn't turn out to be true. But even though I empirically proved to myself that it wasn't true, I still, something in me is always tempted. I always feel like, okay, I'm feeling this thing now. Now I need to get drunk so I can write a poem about it. Mm. Interesting. I, I used to call that, um, I, I wrote a poem, actually, Red Wine Makes Me Weepy. And you know, there's that, that expression, a drunk man's words are a sober man's thoughts. Hmm. I was, I feel like, uh, a lot of the times that was a way that I did access my feelings because I can, I feel like even in sobriety, I can be a bit robotic. It's almost like I, you know, I, I'm never kind of, it never ceases to amaze me my ability to detach from my emotions, even in sobriety, which is interesting to me because I would think that I would just be that I think the hardest thing about getting sober for me, especially in the early days was that it's really just getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I couldn't sit with my feelings. I didn't, I couldn't sit with boredom. I couldn't sit with, I couldn't sit with grief. I couldn't sit with anything. And now even in sobriety, I've noticed, you know, a few more years in, I've noticed that I can still detach from my feelings. And there was that aspect of using things like alcohol to kind of access those feelings that I might not be getting in touch with. And I did, I I did want what I meant by like the oblivionates is I have such a restless mind that I constantly just want to escape my brain. I'm constantly, that's why Twitter is such a, a gift and a great platform for somebody like me because my mind races and I, Twitter is really one of the, you know, I feel like Facebook seems like a nursing home compared to Twitter just because Twitter kind of moves at the pace of, of um, not thought obviously, but it's the fastest of the social medias. Mm, Yeah. And, and so I can kind of get that, uh, that wanting to escape my mind, I can escape it by just letting my brain go out onto Twitter. But it's, I feel back in that same space of like wanting to scream because I can't escape my brain. And I meditate every day. I mean, I I was saying this today. I'm like, I'm a maniac. I am a maniac. (laughs) That is, that is the fact, (laughs) the fact of the matter. And kind of managing that and knowing yourself and knowing, okay, so you don't perform well under pressure. And I guess you're saying, or as I understand what you're saying, you, you use, it's almost like the opposite of why I use drugs and alcohol. It sounds like you use them to access your feelings. Mm, Yeah. Is that, yeah. yeah. And I use, I use them to like escape my feelings. And usually that's what I'm trying to do. Mm. Yeah, I think I almost in a way want to feel like fully sorry for myself. Mm. 
Interesting. Um, it's like that kind of sensation you have sometimes when you, you know you feel a little bit under the weather, but you're not sure if you're really ill or if you're just kind of shirking off. Mm. And so you feel, oh, and, and then you find yourself vomiting or you take your temperature and you have a fever and you think, thank goodness, I actually am ill. So I'm not just being lazy. Um, right, I can right, kind of, right. I can legitimately not work because I am ill. And I think that I sometimes use alcohol to kind of move into that from that liminal state of, I feel a bit unhappy to kind of, I definitely feel unhappy. I can now wallow in my kind of sorry state. <laughs> and what do you think is the, why, is that just because of like the depression, depressive nature that you f- want to fully go there? Or like, I wonder, is it just because your natural resting state is that you resist kind of depression and alcohol allows you to kind of fully embrace it? Or I'm not sure. I think it's a kind of wish to express, to bring things out into the open. Mm. I think it has something to do with that, even though, you know, I'm doing it on my own very frequently to bring it kind of out into the open and express it to myself. Right. It Because it literally, it diminishes your inhibition. So it, it would, it, do, it does have that capacity to reveal things to other people and yourself that you wouldn't, you might be hiding from even yourself. That is mm. one of the, that it's a, it's a social lubricant. It's why people drink before they go to parties. It gives them that little bit of the confidence and the the edge and not feeling so self-conscious. That's been an interesting part of sobriety too, is really having to notice where I'm in, inhibited, where I'm inhibiting mm. myself. I, and I'm pretty open. I mean, I'm, I obviously kind of don't have much, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm pretty open with the world about where I'm at and I think that's helpful, but it it's, I wonder, I always do wonder what I'm, you know, people always say, how are you doing? And I'm like, good, I think. I mean, I'm never really sure <laughs> like what's going on under there. As far as I know, I could be crying in like traffic in two hours. I'm not really sure. How does, how does doing comedy relate to all of this or, or relate to who you are as a person? Because I have to tell you that I think it's one of the most courageous things and it would be my, it's my living nightmare for some Mm. comic to bring me up on stage and make me interact with them and attempt to be witty. Um, And so I'm, I'm always just stunned by people who are, who put themselves out there to be funny professionally, especially um, when it's improvised. Mm. It's not so much in, I mean, I write most of my material before I get up and do it. I am, I'm a writer before I'm anything. And mm. stand up is usually just, you know, part of the art of stand up. And I've, I've, last year was the least amount of time I spent on stage because it's the most money I've ever made writing. So I think those two things are related. I, I, I actually started getting paid to write and, doing stand up is i although i'll get paid sometimes it's primarily 
a very fun outlet and hobby. And once I started getting paid to write, I, it was harder for me to justify all the time I was spending on stand-up. But to your point, I think with comedy, I it's, a, again, it ties into that adrenaline rush. It's such a rush. It is, it's just a massive, it still gives me my heart. I mean, I wish people could feel my heart before I go and perform and get on stage because it, it races every single time. Even if I'm doing an open mic in front of my peers, I still get so nervous and I, I got sober and didn't really realize that I had debilitating stage fright. And that was, that was an interesting thing to, to become aware of. <laughs> Speaking of uninhibited, I had no idea because I started doing stand up when I was drinking and I always drank before I got on stage. So once I quit drinking, I realized, Oh, I have crippling stage fright. So that was, oh, wow. yeah. And no, most people wouldn't, you know, my friends say they wouldn't even notice it, but I, I feel it for sure. So that I think comedy and I, and I just think it's that again, that, um, you know, attempt to shut my brain up. I remember the first time I ever did stand up, I would, I felt so much relief and I kind of have a rule if I'm thinking I should be talking on stage if I'm thinking something, I should probably be saying it because then I'm fully embracing that moment and picking up whatever weirdness is going on in the audience or something. And, and, and I just feel like my, it's the one time I feel as a writer, I always have this kind of voice that's narrating everything constantly. And it never shuts up ever. And when I'm on stage, it's like that narrator gets to have the mic and it's quiet. My brain is quiet. So I think it, it, it kind of functions as a, as a meditation of sorts too and a, a way for me to escape that, that nonstop chatter. I, I feel that writing does that too. It's like I really feel the need for a witness. Mm. Um, and it seems as though I can't just, even though I'm quite an introverted person, I think rather unlike you in that sense, but... I can't just kind of experience the thing myself and have a feeling and thought about it. It doesn't seem somehow real to me until I've shared that. Interesting. You know, it's like I I need somebody to know that it happened. I need mm. to tell someone else. And the easiest way to do that is to write about it. So whenever I have a really intense experience, my instinct is to write about it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that, does comedy have a similar kind of role for you? I feel like writing does for me in that respect more than, my instinct is always to write. I, that's And I feel like that's been my instinct since I was, again, very young. But my, I think comedy has the, it's this outlet where I get to be, well, I used to get to be until, you know, modern comedy seems a little bit more censored. Um, I could just say those kind of outrageous things. And I always say to comedians who end up apologizing for jokes, I'm like, don't, don't get into the joke. The, the hill you should be dying on is your right to be hyperbolic. That's what I love about comedy. I can say those extremely ridiculous things like stereotypes don't exist in a void there. You, you should be able to poke fun at everything. I do think 
tragedy plus time equals comedy. I really don't think that there's anything kind of beyond the pale for jokes if the joke is funny. I mean, funny is funny. And funny is funny for different people find different things funny. Different people find different kinds of humor funny. And that's the beauty of comedy is that it's such a, there's such a massive umbrella that, you know, somebody, unless you're just kind of in a humorless person in general, you should be able to find something that will make you laugh. And it's so, it feels so good to laugh. And just to be able to take a lot of the more, I do a lot of self-deprecating and personal humor. So to be able to joke about addiction and to be able to joke about depression and to be able to joke about even recently I I mean I did I shared at a meeting last night and everybody was dying laughing and I was I was thinking to myself like I might actually have to turn this into a stand-up routine because it's so do you mean an AA meeting yeah (laughs) I think that it's really uh you know the kind of censoriousness that something like Twitter encourages where you can take tiny little snippets and analyze and condemn and you can quickly share those with half the world. Mm. I think that 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 has may potentially have a chilling effect on a kind of freewheeling rhetoric where you can just explore ideas Mm. and you can, you don't have to have everything thought out in advance and all your things carefully and um, diplomatically phrased. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be some space for just saying the thing and then you can correct it later or you know you can enlarge upon it later but just sort of brain dumping mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what twitter used to be too it was something that was not weaponized like it has been in the past six to seven years really is where i've seen the rise of the weaponization of your words and That is an interesting, you know, again, being off Twitter, I've been, I am suddenly liberated in terms of the things that I want to write while I'm off Twitter, because I don't have to hear what anyone's saying. And it's amazing how it's changed what I'm writing about culturally. I'm just saying things that I want to say. I'm like, "Eh, I think boys and girls are different. Deal with it. Like, (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily just say that that way. What, because I'm constantly aware of the mob and I'm censoring myself because I'm trying to be, as you said, diplomatic and I'm trying to be, to preemptively protect myself from what I know the inevitable criticisms will be. And that's dangerous. That, I mean, you should be able to say stupid things and not have your life ruined over it. You should be able to learn from making a mistake. I've, I got piled on recently and it was something that I said before I had coffee and I didn't use quotes. And it was like, I, I can see the criticisms, but the pylon was so, you know, all of a sudden I'm being called racist and all this stuff. And it's like, uh, it's so disproportionate. You know, the, the reaction is so disproportionate to the, to the, to the, the initial tweet that it's so, it suddenly snowballs so quickly. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's often, you know, I'm, I'm off, I'm often right. I usually it takes me like three seconds to write a tweet. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm being quite literal because oh, I'm a I fast know. typer, and 
I, I'm very reactive on Twitter. You know, I have never, in theory, it's possible to think before you tweet. I realize that, but I have never been able to. No, no, to. that's not me either. I'm very much like brain to, to Twitter, directly. And, and then people are doing these close readings and thoughtful analyses, which which, you know, can be fun and good. But sometimes it's, why didn't you... Co- consider all of this other history, theory, and et cetera, before you said that thing. <laughs> You're like, because of Twitter. <laughs> That's why. You're not supposed to. I'm sorry that I didn't consider, like, all of critical race theory before I tweeted something in three seconds. Like, it's not – that's what I mean. It's such a disproportionate reaction, and it's so unrealistic, and it's so unf- – it's not uh, – it, it, I. it's not – a good faith interpretation of humans, you know, it's, it's, just, no. you're, you're assuming the worst about everybody. Like, oh, that one tweet represents all of you. That thing that you randomly fired off in three seconds. Usually with, with most people, I would say under, the, under some substance, like under <laughs> the influence of some substance or another or multiple. Or- or the lack of some substance or the lack that you of, need, like caffeine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In my instance, or just because, in, in, interestingly enough, in this particular example, I I said something about it was it was like about a dumb magazine cover, and I said like the war on white men, and I meant to put quotes, and I didn't because there wasn't enough space. And oh boy, like everyone's like, look at you tweeting this unironically, and it's like, yeah, I didn't put quotes because I didn't have enough space, and I hadn't had coffee yet. And now I'm a racist. <laughs> like, it's just so ridiculous. It's so funny. I can't, it's hard to, and in the, in the moment when you start, the, when those pylons, and I'm, I'm writing about this right now too, the like, the mobs, it, when those pylons start, that, you know, it is like, it can feel overwhelming because suddenly you have hundreds of thousands of people calling you garbage per minute and it's, I mean, my, my response is generally like log out and just walk away. But if you don't have that instinct to log out and you sit there and kind of take it, it can be, it can feel real. If that's where, even though it's ridiculous and silly, it feels, you feel all the feelings of being kind of shunned and piled on and, um, I don't know, just the people, you become a caricature, I guess, to everybody kind of becomes a caricature on, on social media. So they, they say things that I can't imagine they would say to you if they were sitting face to face with you. Yeah, no way. No way. And I feel like the other problem is that I personally, I don't know about you, but I have this compulsion to answer. I can't just leave the person's comment there, Uh (laughs) you know, Um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to now answer once and then block the person, Mm. so I'm not tempted to continue interacting, Um, and, but there's this urge also to have the last word, especially if the person is being very unfair about, about you, Um, and this is not unique to Twitter because I also experienced this when I was writing a blog, and I don't know if you've experienced it in that context too. Mm-hmm. At, at one point, someone else on their blog had an entire entry which was about me, and someone alerted me to it. So I went to the comments and I said, look, you really un- 
you really unfairly represented something I said. And he did. He really unfairly represented it. He like snipped out the first bit where I had explained why I was saying the thing. So he made it sound way more extreme and crazy than than it was in context. Yeah. And, and, you know, his response was, go away. This isn't addressed to you. You have, this is none of your business, <laughs> which was really extraordinary. We are talking about you here and it's none of your business. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, sorry, this is public. So if it's none of my business, <laughs> you probably take this to a secret chat room. Um, I don't know. It's interesting because I balance and this is, I feel like sometimes I get a little bit, uh, I had an edit, my very first editor, I wrote a column in my, my hometown. It was the first thing I ever got paid to write. And my first editor said, it's beneath you to address your critics. And I remember him saying that and, and it's, and it seemed so elitist to me. And now in the world that we live in, I mean, that was for a hard paper that the internet was just kind of beginning. I, it was 2003. Social media didn't exist. You didn't have this reality show culture, YouTube culture, where everybody feels like they have the right to be a part of your life and comment on your life. And there's this symbiotic relationship between these micro celebrities and their fans. And mm. so it was a different time. And I think that is kind of the old guard perception of, of like that, that elitist kind of literary world mentality of like, it's beneath you to respond to your critics. Blah, blah, blah. But there is some, I, I feel like Twitter is, it's like the Coliseum. And there's that famous, I think it was uh, maybe Teddy Roosevelt. It said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So I love this quote because it, it I think of Twitter as kind of the, the stand and it's like you get to hear, if you're somebody, I, I write for magazines and I feel like I'm on the ground battling. You know, I'm in, I'm in, the, in the battle. And then it gives you, it affords you the opportunity to hear what every single person in the stadium is saying about you. I'm like, you're in the fucking, you're in the cheap seats. I don't care what you have to say. You get out here and write a blog or write something that causes a reaction or get out there and put your thoughts together. And I will take you seriously as somebody that I should listen to the, my, the, your critique of me. Otherwise, like, I don't care. And that might be elitist of me, but I I have respect for my peers who are. If you wrote a criticism of me, because I respect your work, I would take it seriously. If I wrote something and you wrote a a critique of my work, or you wrote to me personally and said, "Hey, Bridget, I really feel like you're off the mark here," I would take it seriously because you put your work out there. You are in you're in the stadium battling. And you're exposing yourself and you're putting your, you're presenting your ideas and opening them up for criticism. 
but like some person with 29 followers who's going to comment on some, I'm like, yeah, get the, get the F out of here. I, I don't it's, it's, Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for saying that. That's a lovely thing to say. Um, and at the risk of starting the Mutual Appreciation Club here, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things I admire about you is you're so uncowed on Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, you are unapologetic. And I think it's really a mistake to... It's obviously correct to apologize if you've done something wrong. And because I am so emotionally reactive on Twitter, I apologize a lot. Mm. And, uh, you know, my sister always says to me, Iona, don't apologize. Just don't do the thing in the first place. Mm. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I don't. I, I think, you know, sometimes uh, we are un- unfair on people and so I end up apologizing and that's quite genuine and I think that is, that's fine. But there are these kind of strategic public apologies that I see people offering. Oh, I, I you know, I never intended to offend anybody and what I said was actually perfectly okay, but I did offend somebody, so I'm going to apologize now and take it all back. Mm-hmm. I think that's extremely harm. I understand why people do that, so I forgive them for doing it um, because, you know, they're under so much pressure. And sometimes it's necessary professionally, they have to do this. Mm-hmm. But I also wish they wouldn't because I think it really damages discourse for the rest of us. Oh, I, I mean, that is my big thing never cave to the mob. I. I definitely will apologize when I feel like I've said or done something that was hurtful or if I was unintentionally, um, if I, if I just maybe was unintentionally callous, because that is one thing about Twitter. I can, I can be, it brings out that kind of callous side or snarky side. And it's, I try to be my best self, but it's not, it, Twitter doesn't necessarily encourage you to be your best self. So there's that aspect. I, I'm not, I'm not above, I don't think, no, like, I'm not one of those people who's like, I'll never apologize. But I do think that, you know, for instance, a comedian who said something that maybe was offended somebody to, to cave to the mob and apologize is, First of all, it's disingenuous. If you're getting forced into apologizing, you you didn't want to apologize. So it's not even real. No one takes it seriously. We all know it's a marketing stunt. And it's not, no, it doesn't really, it's not ever going to be enough. If the mob is going to, wants you to apologize, they don't want you to be sorry. They want you to be done. Generally, if a mob is kind of forcing you to apologize, it's not, that's not what they really want. They want blood. And mm-hmm. nobody's, Nobody's looking through your old twi- Twitter account or your old Facebook or your old work with the with the hope of of helping to for you to learn and grow. They're doing it with the intent of hurting you. So and damaging your career or damaging your livelihood or professional or your reputation, any of that. So I don't take those mob did, you know, I can't take that seriously. And I, I don't, I, I hope that I never cave to the mob. I'm, I don't think it's healthy, like you said, for the discourse, because, and again, like I said, like I say to these comedians, don't die on the hill of whatever dumb joke you made. Don't get into an argument about why little people shouldn't be tossed or whatever the stupid joke was. 
die on your right to be hyperbolic, die on your right to die on your right to have free speech, die on your right to make a mistake and say something that was okay. Maybe it was not perfect, but it's, by the way, this idea that we're supposed to take care of everybody else's emotions and not offend anybody ever is insane. I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm also not caving to that. It is not my responsibility to take care of how every single person perceives a joke that I made, a tweet that I wrote, a piece that I wrote. That is like therapy 101. How do you take care of yourself? In rehab, the first thing they said to me, I used to be like, they're pushing my buttons, they're pushing my buttons in my, in my halfway house with 40 women. And the, the therapist always said, yeah, and they're your buttons. So you need to take responsibility for them. That was like, I learned that when I was 19. You know, that's something that it's so basic. And this is one thing, this is one area that I'm really interested in is how intersectionality kind of bumps up against the basic notions and therapy of working against the victim mentality and taking responsibility for your feelings. These two things seem to clash kind of in in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one thing that I don't know if exactly intersectionality, but the kind of victimhood culture, Mm -hmm. um, to use that phrase that Jason Manning and Bradley Campbell use in their book. And I'll just shout out to them because I, uh, Helen Pluckrose and I interviewed them in an earlier edition of this podcast. So anyone who's listening, you can, after you finish listening to this, if you want to find that, you'll find it in the earlier episodes. What was the bu- um, book they wrote? It was, it's called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Oh, I have to read that. Um, yeah, I love Helen Pluckrose too, by the way. Helen is the greatest. And that's a fantastic <laughs> book. And I, th- one of the things is this cultivation of vulnerability and I have some sympathy with the idea of trigger warnings and safe spaces. I have a, I'm probably a little bit over it now, but I still have a mild PTSD from a really terrible attack uh, that happened to me in India, mm-hmm. which maybe I won't go into a lot of detail, but I got attacked by a group of men uh, on the street. Mm-hmm. I was okay, but I really didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, I had this feeling I could have died. You know, everybody was just watching and gawping and blocking my escape. Nobody would call the police or help in any way. And it was a large group. Like, there were maybe five guys who were being the aggressors, and there were about 20 around watching, forming a tight circle. India terrifies me in this respect. This is, I lived in fear of exactly what you're describing the whole time I was there. I have to say that what happened to me was quite atypical um, for Bombay where I was. And I accidentally was in a really rough neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it didn't look so different from, you know, two blocks earlier. Mm -hmm. But I walked into a very rough neighborhood where people were dealing drugs uh, and um, they took me for a and they took me for an Indian journalist, uh, and they actually even refused to believe that I spoke English. For wow. example, they refused to believe that I didn't speak Marathi. I was quite tanned at the time, and I am half Indian, mm-hmm. and I had been taking some photos, but not of them, of plants right. and stuff. 
but they thought I was photographing them when they were doing a drug deal. Uh, and that's wow, what I discovered really... later, much later, when a good friend of mine who is a writer and journalist herself investigated wow. because she wanted to find out why this had happened. So it is quite unusual what happened to me, and I don't want it to put off people from going to Bombay because this was quite an atypical thing to happen. Mm -hmm. But I do now, I can't watch mob scenes. Um, mm. And so I kind of appreciate trigger warnings myself, but I feel that the answer is not, but you should not put a trigger warning on everything. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody is making a speech and you do not have to attend, you don't need a trigger warning for that. Mm -hmm. Well, you can have a trigger warning saying this speech may upset you if you can't deal with X topic, but you shouldn't ha try to stop the speech from happening. You know, you just don't go. And I think that the healthier thing anyway is rather than avoiding all triggers is to try to gradually get yourself used to, by gentle stages, used to being able to deal with those things because the trauma right. is over. So if you're still feeling the fear and panic, but you're no longer in danger, that's unhealthy. You need to kind of try to work past that. Yeah, it's that. that's the tricky thing about trauma is that it lives in your body. There's a great, you know, there's that great Vanderkolk book, The, the Body Keeps the Score. Mm. And he write, he's kind of one of the foremost experts on trauma, and he writes a lot about PTSD and soldiers and just how it lives in your actual body so that when it is triggered, and I have experience with my own um, stuff, it, it's, a, it's a physiological response. It's not like you are – it's not it's, – it's, it's hard to intellectualize something that is a – a physiological response to something that happened to you. And, yes. you know, there, there are many tricks that, and it, again, you can, you don't necessarily get rid of trauma, but you can, like you said, come up with coping skills. One of the things they have um, some people do is plant your feet on the ground and notice where your bum is connected to the chair and start naming everything in the room that's a certain color just to ground you in your reality because it is what happens is though that you lived through this, but the past kind of takes over and you forget where you are. You know, it's mm -hmm. a, it is a, it is a, it, it's PTSD is interesting. It's an interesting, it's something I definitely like to, if I ever went back to school, I think I'd probably study, you know, trauma in the body and how it, it manifests because it, it is so crazy how that stuff lives in your cells. Mm, yeah. But what doesn't help is this kind of feeling that from now on you are a victim. Right, um, and that you're helpless, that yeah. you're somehow helpless over it. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in tools and and giving and coping skills. And this is, I, I mean, it's why I love that book, The Coddling of the American Mind. It, it's so true that we, coddling never really, what, what good does that do, really? Ultimately, teaching people that the world... It's this, this idea that the world owes us something is just fascinating to me. I, it feels like it just kind of sprung up out of, out of the maybe so much of the 
we have so much. We're so, we're, I mean, speaking of privilege, we are maybe the most privileged humans to ever walk the planet Earth and somehow the least resilient. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating dichotomy. Yeah, there seems to be this. I'm also going to shout out to um, the podcast we did with Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff because oh, yeah. I also did an episode on that book. Okay. Um, but um, I think that, you know, there's this confusion between championing resilience and victim blaming right. in a lot of people's minds that, of course, it's, um, of course, you know, there can be a kind of callousness to telling people to just suck it up or, you know, immediately <laughs> after something terrible is happening, happened, saying, well, you should have done X and Y and Z because, do you expect those people to turn back time? You know, what is the right, point of right. that? Um, but at the same time, um, offering offering warnings, for example, um, you know, what happened to me was really terrible and in no sense my fault. I have zero feeling of guilt or self-blame. But at the same time, if somebody was coming to Bombay, I would tell them, avoid that section of Vera Desai Road. And that's right. not victim blaming. That's just trying to give them tools I make- can't believe people are even conflating these. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah, it does, <laughs> but they like, do. That's crazy to me. I didn't even know. I mean, this is, it's like every day I learn of some kind of newfangled idea that just seems completely insane to me. It's not, yeah, how is that confusing to you? Victim blaming, people who are saying that, so they'll say that you giving a warning. That's the irony too. These are the people who want trigger warnings so you want a trigger warning, but you don't want me to say, hey, don't leave your drink unattended at the bar because you might get roofied. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. It's, it's, I think it's, I mean, I think this is linked to intersection, intersectional theory mm-hmm. and the kind of implicit, I know not everybody who uses intersectional theory sees it this way, but this kind of implicit um, making a virtue out of oppression. The more oppressed mm. you are, the kind of more ethical you are. The higher right. up you are in ethical status. Um, right. So anything that kind of takes away from that sort of um, sensation of oppression, um, not necessarily the real oppression, but just the kind of depiction of it, is mm-hmm. somehow taking something away from you, taking some status away from you or some, I know, some kind of... It's weird. It's like reverse status. It's yeah. A, it's a weird... And I know that not all... inter. I've read the original um, piece and I know that not... I feel like intersectionality has been hijacked to a certain extent by victim culture. I think, you know, my joke that I constant My constant refrain of capitalism always wins... There is the outrage industrial complex now. So intersectionality just so happens to fuel that complex nicely. And it has been uh, hijacked. I, th- I agree that, you know, some of the ideas are not, I don't toss the baby out with the bathwater. But I do think that inevitably, because of the way that it's structured, it becomes almost, in, almost every single time a circular si- firing squad. It just Mm -hmm. seems like no matter how low or high, depending on whichever way you want to perceive it, you go on this um, hierarchy of grievances 
inevitably you're going to step out of line and there will be a, it, it, and everybody kind of ends up devouring one another. Yeah. Yeah. I can, um, just to move on a little bit, um, because you write a lot about, uh, sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to hear some of your more uh, controversial views or maybe views that you think, things that you think are widely misunderstood or misrepresented um, about kind of sexual relations, sexuality, men and women. I don't know that my views are that controversial or that the culture has shifted so much that my views have become controversial. Mm. I don't think Mm. that they're that controversial. I I mean, my most controversial view is probably that men and women are different. Now, this would not be a controversial view even six years ago, Mm. 10 years ago. But, But now this is something that can get you banned from Twitter for saying. So that is really my most, what I, what's interesting to me is the discussion that's occurred around that, that view, um, writing for men primarily for the past, I guess, five or six years now and being a woman, um, identifying as a woman, being born a woman, um, I, I just feel like, again, this is an area that's been hijacked by extremists. Mm. So the majority of people writing me have very, that you know, you read old Playboys or you Playboy advisors or old columns. And I, I agree that, you know, gen, there's a lot of gender stuff that is a social construct. Absolutely. But I feel like this is again, my obsession with evolutionary biology, it's like we're trying to outthink thousands of years of evolutionary biology and like one generation of gender studies. And Mm. it's creating a really dark shadow because people are having to repress a lot of their basic instincts. And men in particular are, um, they're really lost right now. Men are, and, 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 I think, again, my controversial view is that you don't need to oppress men in order to empower women. If you are, are women empowering yourselves, that's a great thing. We need that. I think the rise of, like I've called it goddess rising for over a decade now, this energy has been coming. It, I, I'm completely for that, but that does not mean that we need to emasculate men. And uh, I think that these views are not necessarily controversial, although they're considered controversial by some people. Mm. What are, I mean, are, since you write for, you write for a male audience on Playboy, what kinds of complaints do you hear from men? What kinds of things do you think women are not hearing or, or need to hear from a male perspective? What insights have you have you got from that? They're not hearing men. Mm. They're not interested in hearing men. They're they're just not. I'll put a call out for men and say, "Hey guys, how are you doing about X, Y, and Z?" And I'll I'll get thousand word essays from hundreds of men. And it's like no, 
you know, when you look at the numbers, statistically, men are the ones that are kind of, we're losing a lot of them. They're killing themselves in higher numbers. They're succumbing to addiction in higher numbers. They're not graduating from college in higher numbers. There, this is a, there is, you know, as much as there's a lot to be said about Jordan Peterson, for instance, and I had my own personal kind of issues and feelings based on a long story that's not even worth me getting into. But essentially, I kind of looked at him from a side eyed view. And then as I've spoken to more and more men, he he's offering these men something that is truly helping them. And, and over and over again, I've had men tell me that he's saving them in quotes. And so I'm now really interested in what he's having. He's saying to these men that um, they're latching onto because for some reason they feel purposeless and like they've been set adrift. And essentially, and I'm not talking about just white men. I mean, men, all men across the board are feeling like they don't have a right to speak. And that is, again, anytime you try and repress something, we've seen this with sexuality, it creates a huge shadow. Mm, Yeah. And I'm terrified of the shadow that repressing masculine energy will cast. That, That is, you know, everybody's like, oh, you just have to deal with it. And I think that in general, women have been given a lot more tools in terms of communicating and we generally are just better at it. We're better. We have been given the space to express our feelings. It's, it, this is that idea of, of quote unquote toxic masculinity. There is, whether it's toxic masculinity or not, men just haven't felt like they can express themselves as honestly and openly and share their feelings. And so you couple that that's what I don't understand. Again, it seems to be this kind of, it's a paradox in w- or what they're hearing. They're hearing, hey, toxic masculinity is really bad. And part of that is that men can't share, share their feelings. Oh, and by the way, shut up. Your, your opinion doesn't matter. Take a seat. <laughs> yeah, that's a really contradictory place to start from. I think that- And that's where they're starting yeah, from. Yeah, I think it's also if you are- if you start from a position of so much censoriousness, then you will never get to the truth. It's better that mm-hmm. you hear it's better that you hear what the person has to say, even if what they have to say is overly macho or sexist or old fashioned or whatever it might be. It's mm-hmm. always better that you begin from a position of information mm-hmm. um, because you can't control what people are thinking. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to improve relationships, you've got to begin from knowing what they're thinking and you have to get them to trust you enough to tell you without immediately shutting them down, even if you disagree. I think there's that. And then there's the mixed messages that men get from women where the, the modern woman might say that she is empowered, et cetera, and that the the all of the talk about toxic masculinity and not the the um what is it that you know c- the culture of consent and so wanting kind of to get express consent every step of the way and also women want to be dominated and they still want 
So it's very confusing for men. They're getting a lot of mixed messages. And essentially, they're, they're, most of them are expressing to me that they're just kind of paralyzed with fear. Mm. They don't want to make a move. They don't want to ask a woman out. They're, they're scared that if they do, it will be, especially because there has been this culture of now with Me Too, there, there's the legitimate Me Too. And then there's probably the, the Me Too, the, the fear that Me Too would be manipulated or it would be weaponized or whatever. That there, then there's those gray areas where it's maybe not so clear and men are f- afraid they'll they'll you know slide into someone's DM and ask her for her number or to go on a date, and next thing you know, you're on Jezebel as a predator. So it's those are the things that I'm hearing from men. Whether people want to hear that from me or not is another story. I'll get a lot of pushback from people saying that well, men just need to like, it's so ironic. Like, <laughs> I'll hear them saying things like men just need to man up and like, they just need to deal. They need to learn. We all had to learn. We didn't have them helping us. And I, I don't, I don't see how treating, I don't understand what I don't understand. And this is all across the board, how you can accuse someone of behaving in a way, either bullying or toxic masculinity or whatever. And then essentially behave that same way, oppress them or make them silence them. That doesn't, how is that helpful? That's just what I don't, that this is my big question for the world. And how is this helpful? How is it helpful to, to put upon these people who have supposedly done you wrong, the exact same rigid things that you're accusing them of doing to you? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to differentiate and people don't differentiate between first of all, kind of, you know, you do need to approach things in stages. So everybody mm-hmm. knows this, you know, you can't, if you rush up to a woman and grab her by the pussy <laughs> as, as Trump put it, mm-hmm. um, you know, that is obviously not, not likely to meet with success. You have to, you know, think you take things in stages, you kind of, Mm-hmm. suss things out and uh, read the you you read the weather at each point in an approach in anything in life I mean in any kind of close approach but especially in, in the sexual and you have to be extra careful if you're going to do something which someone could read as very aggressive so you can't just assume mm-hmm. for example some women do enjoy being dominated or they enjoy being tied up and hit but if you go and tie up and hit some woman without knowing, no. it's, you know, you are committing a felony. Well, um, and this obvious. is what I'm hearing from, yeah, and this is what I'm hearing from women too, which is, you know, to present the other side is that because men are watching a lot of um, porn and online, you know, content, they're, they are behaving and assuming in, in the bedroom, a lot of women will have just these like terrifying experiences because a man will assume that they want to be choked or spit on or whatever because they've seen it in porn. And no, you can't do like, no, you can't. That is, those are things you need to like have conversations about. And so the other side is that, that, yeah, that I don't know. Sometimes it's very, it's very, very interesting, complicated times that we are living in. And 
I'm fascinated because so what like your to your point, so many of these things um, interacting with humans and having empathy, figuring out when you said something wrong because you said something to a to a, a face to face to a human and then they reacted, whether it was with body language or that is so much of it is trial and error. And even with in terms of sexuality, with the consent culture and Me Too and the all of the confusing forces, how are we eroding the ability to explore and make mistakes and and you know be awkward? Mm. We're trying to kind of remove awkwardness and from all interactions, by the way, not just sexual ones. And awkwardness is a, a, it's it's we can't avoid it in life. It's part of our growth. It's part of how we learn how to be humans in the world. And when you try and take that away, what are we losing? Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that there needs to be, going back to the sexual specifically, although I think this applies more broadly as well, there needs to be an ability to have a veto right at every stage. And I think that is something that I don't remember, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years older than you, and I don't remember that being part of the culture when I was growing up. Um, I didn't lose my virginity until very late, because I felt as though once you kissed the man, you gave him a kind of blanket permission to do whatever else he wanted to do with you from then on. <laughs> yeah. And there was a kind of point of no return at which you had signed away your rights, as it were. And I think that that is an attitude that the Me Too movement and the consent culture has helped to eradicate. And I think that's very important that at any, there's totally. no point of no return. At any point you can say, exactly. I've changed my mind. Stop doing this. Actually, I don't want to do this. You know, the, the person who doesn't want the thing has a right to end the thing at any point. Um, and I think that's important, but that's a little bit different from having to check in all the time. You do have to right. speak well, up and say, okay, stop now. Um, right. Sometimes body language is enough and you should also pay some attention to body language. Um, I think that should be, we should encourage that, um, paying attention to responses. But if the responses are not meeting with, are being misread, then you should speak up. And it's only after right. you've spoken up and the person has ignored you that they have actually done something really seriously morally amiss. And, you know, consent culture says, like, body language isn't enough. And you need explicit verbal consent every step of the way. And as, uh, you know, the younger generation definitely seems much more comfortable with this. They, they, they seem totally fine with it. And perhaps it is just a generational thing that I, I don't come from that at all. I, I come from no means no. That's where, that's the generation that I, mm -hmm. that's what I was raised with and every generation it changes. So I do, I do think the consent culture, again, there's good and bad things about all, all of this. Uh, the interesting uh, to go to the other side of consent culture is that apparently you can retract consent even retroactively. So what's the point of consent? Yeah, that makes If you no can sense. look back, if you can look back and say, actually, no, I wasn't consenting, what is the point of consent? Mm -mm. 
and now they have apps. And I mean, it's, it's bananas. It's again, try, we're, we're trying to control human sexuality, which we're trying to hack human sexuality and good luck with that folks. It is one of the most complex things possibly known to man. The reason that I love writing about sex is because it's so all encompassing. It's, it gives life. It's, pleasurable it's shameful there's so every gamut of human emotions is experienced and attached to this it has the ability to destroy it i mean we literally have crimes of passion that's like a normal thing in our society that we're all like oh yeah that's perfectly normal it's crazy it's it's so much bigger than us and it is the drive for our species to procreate so i'm more interested in where are we losing that drive? Because that's something that's happening. The drive is kind of just falling off the cliff in many cultures. And why, why are we losing that drive? It is the, it is the primary reason we kind of exist. And, and, and that suddenly it seems like people are more interested in their phones. I mean, they just did some study that people said they were more interested in Netflix than they were in having sex. That is alarming. Yeah, that's pretty alarming. I mean, having been in a very long-term relationship, I have some empathy with that. Um, <laughs> um, You're like, but yes, yeah, I, I think also <laughs> there's a, a, um, there are so many gray areas. You know, I think there's a reluctance on both sides that I'm seeing on both sides of this kind of debate. On the one mm-hmm. hand, there are people who are so um, <clears throat> concerned about the kind of excesses of Me Too and consent culture that they are allowing really bad behavior to slide. It's like if this wasn't right. actually legally rape then, you know, the guy did nothing wrong. Um, And I saw that, at least that was how I perceived the Aziz Ansari case, for example, if it happened as reported, which I do not know. So I'm just going to assume it did um, and take it more as a kind of uh, just example as if it were an abstract example. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, there is a, a, a long way between he committed rape, which clearly didn't happen, and he behaved exactly as he should have behaved. Um, you know, we can we can also say, okay, these behaviors are not good. Stop doing this. Maybe try to do something differently. Um, and a lot of people were just on one side or the other, absolutely lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the guy was a villain or a that... hero, uh, which was right. Um, it leaves no room for um, for ambivalence, and and that is also a big part of being yeah. human. I just I, I feel like it is that culture of um, you know there's a lot that's been written about this particular kind of from the conservative side of maybe this is just human nature kicking back in that we're inherently tribal that we're inherently possessive that we're that this idea of kind of the enlightenment is is something that's actually a phenomenon that is not really that intuitive for humans. It's some kind of miracle that occurred. Jonah Goldberg said this in The Suicide of the West. Um, 
And I do wonder, you know, how there's this lack of nuance and reasonable discussion, and it seems to be er eroding. And I do feel like because humans also to tie back to kind of that mob mentality, the mob law that we've been living under, people are scared and frightened. And so in that instance, they will lean into just choosing a side because it's easier in this kind of cultural, like in the cultural, in the culture war, essentially to have a tribe behind you defending you than it is to just kind of go out there and risk saying, I kind of see both sides and get destroyed by both sides, which is invariably what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, I mean, this is just a theory of mine, maybe complete bullshit, but I think maybe there's also a certain kind of combined snobbery and envy towards people who are successful hustlers. And, you know, I am an unsuccessful hustler, but some people perceive me as successful because they haven't seen my actual bank statement. <laughs> because it's possible to generate a lot of noise without earning money. But you are a little more successful, I think. In fact, I, you know, far from being envious, I'm quite kind of admiring of that. And, but I feel like there are a lot of people just describing, um, talking about grifters. I know. Everybody's a grifter now. And, you know, of course, some people actually are grifters, i.e. they are spouting specific political opinions because their sponsors want them to and those are insincere. Mm-hmm. And I have my, you know, it's it's hard to tell if someone is a grifter or not because you can't mind read, but I have my suspicions about certain people. Mm-hmm. But this kind of the ubiquity of this word... Mm-hmm. suggests that there's something somehow wrong with trying to earn a living through creative work mm-hmm. and through being a kind of, I would describe you as a sort of public-facing intellectual. <laughs> That's hilarious. Thank you. <laughs> I don't I don't feel, I guess I never, because I didn't, it's the like insecurity of never having gone to college. I just don't feel like I'm an intellectual or, an, you know, I'm certainly not an academic by any means. And I always joke that the only reason that people listen to me is because I keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a skill. I'm like, I'm not an expert in anything. You know, I, I'm an expert in essentially myself and my, I'm not an expert in addiction. I'm an expert in my own journey with addiction. But um, I, I do think that I get called a grifter like at least 500 times a day on Twitter. And that's interesting to me because nobody's sponsoring me. So I'm like, who am I grifting? Okay. So I'm, I'm grifting like who, who am I grifting on behalf of? And if I am grift, you know, I get accused of, of being, um, going, becoming a centrist because that's, there's money, money and centrism or whatever. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm just me. There's where I want these people to show me where the money is so I can at least go after it. Yeah. Jonah Goldberg (laughs) said that too. Jonah said there's no money in nuance. It's like nuance is not lucrative. And I, I have, I am a hustler in that my bank statements aren't 
fantastic. I would say that there, I'm, I'm making headway. I'm paying my way as a writer as opposed to having to waitress. But I had a waitressing W-2 from 2018. And mm. so, I mean, for people to act like I'm just um, like rolling in the cash from my centri- hot centrist takes is um, pretty hilarious to me. And I do think that, again, it's easy, again, it's easy to say from the cheap seats or the, or even not the cheap seats. It's easy to, it's easy to criticize people who are out there putting themselves in the line of fire. And I have respect for anybody doing it on any of the sides. I see all of the people who are putting themselves out there and expressing their opinion and putting themselves into the, you know, at mercy of the mob as somebody who's taking a risk and the people who are kind of in the comments, just snarking and threatening and doxing and whatever it might be. I, 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 okay. Yeah. What are you contributing though? Make something, write something, create something. Mm, mm. It's such a lazy way of directing creative energy is criticizing. Well, actually I don't want too many of them to write and create because that would that would be too much competition. <laughs> uh, see, I feel like there's, I'm definitely one of those hippie chicks from like the West Coast where I feel like there's room for us all. I do believe that. I think that, you know, in the marketplace of ideas, the, there's, there are ideas that, you know, some people really love me. I, there's a massive fan, hate club out there of people who just, hate me. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing to witness really. And they just, they, you know, they did a study with Howard Stern and they found that his fans listened to the majority of his radio shows, but you know who listened to every single word? The people who hated him the most. Mm. It's almost a compliment. I mean, I feel it's really odd that they hate you because having uh, listen now to a few of your podcast episodes. Your podcast is almost entirely positive. It's I try about, to keep it that way. It's, it's not always, but yeah. Well, it's strongly that way, especially for me being British. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's a very Californian podcast. <laughs> totally. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's there's a lot of stuff about cultivating resilience about cultivating good mental health, about keeping away from addiction and addictive behaviors, about how to, as I think you put it in a very nice Californian way, but I love this turn of phrase, getting out of your own way. Mm -hmm. It's so positive and helpful. And if it's not helpful, then you don't have to listen. So it's really strange to me. And I think, but I think the thing is, as my friend Gurwinder Bogal, who is a a journalist with, who everybody should follow and read. Uh, he is fantastic. G.S. Bogal on Twitter. Mm. Uh, he says that you shouldn't you shouldn't let it get to you personally because they don't hate you. They don't know you at all. Right. What they hate is a phantasma. And they're not totally. I don't. I had somebody write me a very thoughtful email, and again, this is where I will take criticism that is thoughtful and and kind, you know, where, where they approach me with, with like, I'm a human, I will take it seriously. And somebody said, wrote to me and said, I think it's pretty obvious that you're a social conservative because you obviously detest liberals. 
And I can see how that perception, that's something I do have to be aware of. I can see how I would give that perception on Twitter in particular, because I, what, I do come from a progressive liberal democratic upbringing. I do feel like the, the culture move left and I was pushed a little bit center and I, I'm very frustrated with the what I feel is the kind of totalitarian policing of speech that's coming from that side. That's not to say I'm not as equally worried about the like fascism I see coming from the other side as well. But because it's my former, my roots, and I know it, I feel like it's my job to kind of, I don't know anything about, I didn't know anything about conservatism. And obviously you've never met a social conservative if you think me, the person who like doesn't care who you sleep with, doesn't care what you do, what I'm very libertarian in that sense. If I'm a social conservative, you really haven't met one. But it, it is now interesting to me that social conservatism is de- defined by like if I use the term SJWs. And so mm-hmm. I have to, you know, that is something that I have to watch. I do have to. I'm definitely aware of one of the things that I find that I found in my own experience, even with men, for instance, or women, because I buy in general, but men in particular, I am very fascinated with my own reaction to rejection. So how do I react to being rejected, whether it's from a a man, a peer, etc. And in this instance, I'm aware that I see it on both sides of the aisle, people being radicalized or pushed into a reactionary position where they're saying either they come from the right and they're saying now vote all Democratic or they're coming from the left and they're going full you know, red pills. Um, that is something that's interesting to me too. Am, am, and I'm always constantly checking in with my close friends and people much smarter than, than me and people like you even, where I feel like uh, I need people to kind of keep that in check. Am I just reacting to being rejected by my tribe? Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, how much of my move is truly I just the way I feel and how much of it is me me feeling rejected. I have to I have to be aware of that. Mm. And I do feel there are a lot of people on the right who are I call them uh, moral ambulance chasers who are sort of <laughs> waiting, you know, eagerly for leftists to to get kind of to get rejected or demonized or mobbed by the social justice left. And then they're there with open arms with their kind of crocodile smiles. I guess yeah, that's they're... not a phrase, it's crocodile tears. But you know what I mean, with their kind of fake smiles and come over here, it's all warm and lovely, we will take you in. But as soon as you come to a point where you disagree with them politically, you realize, no, actually. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? no, 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 no. They would sell you the wolves in a second. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is part of the, this is part, this has been an interesting part of the journey of like in, in the past year in particular for me, just on Twitter and in politically and whatever. And I wasn't even writing about politics and to, and I'm, I would not consider myself a political pundit by any means. I think, uh, you know, as many people say, all, co- politics are downstream of culture. So if anything, I can, I feel confident com- commenting on culture that is something that you don't need to be an expert in policy to have a discussion about. But 
it has been interesting to see, you know, you get re- rejected by the left or you suddenly feel like, okay, I, I'm not identifying with the direction that you ne- might be heading in. And then, like you said, the right kind of welcomes you with open arms, but then suddenly it, you, you, I don't want to be weaponized by the right either. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, my joke on Twitter is you, whenever you have a tweet that gets you a lot of followers, you have to follow it up with something that will get rid of like half of those followers. <laughs> it's like, it's very important if you're somebody who kind of runs that line of being in the middle to constantly be shedding the, I'm always like, I'm not who you think I am, guys. Like, I promise you in two tweets, I'm going to say something that probably pisses you off. I, I find my follower number fluctuates so much. I can't seem to get above 9,000 followers. Each time I peak at 9,000, I then lose a couple of hundred and then it gradually <laughs> moves back up and then it starts hemorrhaging again. But yeah, if You're you really need to right. lose followers, then just tweet a few times about Star Trek Discovery. That will, <laughs> that will immediately shed at least 50 per tweet. <laughs> Hilarious. The things that people are so just, it, it, it's like the, the word snowflake is the perfect word. I know people have like such a strong reaction to it, but there are snowflakes on all sides. And it is one of my favorite terms that's kind of come out of this whole culture war. Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a fucking blizzard out there. <laughs> it is. And I think, well, why why shouldn't you be especially concerned about free speech when you're a writer and a comedian? I mean... Yeah, that is a hill I will die on. I always say that. That is a hill I will die on. That is not... It, I've always been, you know, when technology was kind of coming up, I'm, I'm, I'm the generation that kind of got an email at age 18. So I didn't grow up with it, but I have grown with it and watched it grow and, and been old enough to be aware of its growth. And I've always been very interested in seeing where the intersection of free speech and free markets and these social medias, how that was going to play out because there are so many competing influences there. And it's fascinating to kind of be right in the center of that storm and be be able to write, be writing about it. I feel just so lucky. I know that I, I feel lucky to be, I'm, I think I run, you know, I have bouts of depression and anxiety and addiction and whatever, but I think somebody, I'm such a prepper. And somebody said to me that the other day that prepping is the ultimate form of optimism. And I didn't understand why. And they said, it's because you assume you'll survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do think that in my heart, I'm I'm gen generally optimistic about uh, about humanity. It's humans. I feel like you know the fact that there are so many of us on the planet, and it's not just absolute anarchy and chaos everywhere. Every man for themselves in every city, everywhere you go, people are gen. The majority of people are gen genuinely kind and they do you know care about others we just forget that because we hear you know my friend always says you don't hear about the planes that land Mm, mm. and I love that I love I always think about that and just I try to remember that you don't hear about the planes that land where which there's so many small little random acts of kindness and generosity and love and goodness 
millions and billions and billions and billions more than there are bad. And as you said, even to circle back to what happened in Bombay and my own, I want to address my fear. Um, I think it was a large part is because I was there during that time. There was a lot going on there at the time. And it was in the news a lot because it was that during exactly during the year that that woman, that horrible incident on the bus. Mm. And so it was just constantly in the news. So I was constantly, but my experience of India overall was lovely. You know, I was, I, it's, I love that country and can't wait to go back. And so again, there's a one point, what is it? Two or 3 billion people there. And the fact that it's, and not just a lawless mass of violence and and like pillaging and whatever is it's the that is the miracle of humanity. We mm-hmm. do kind of know how to work it out, and I trust that we will, um, unless you know technology divides us all and destroys us. <laughs> well, let's not let that happen. And I think that's a, probably a great place to end. <laughs> I agree. And thank you Don't so let much. technology make you see the worst in humans, people. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think I've discovered the secret of your success on your podcast, etc. And it's that you kind of make people who are talking to you feel like your best friends. So I'd like to thank um, Justin Ward, who makes this this podcast possible week by week with his tireless and wonderful technical support, and who is also the greatest mega babe in the whole of Canada. (laughs) Thank you, Justin. And thank you so much, Bridget. Thank you so much for having me. Now I want to meet this mega babe. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.